All right, well, this is kind of a, a good day, I guess, to, to be here if you have missed our sermon series, because I'm going to recap it really, really quickly. Honestly, like I tend to do often in sermon series, I bit off a little bit more than I could chew with this one. Um, and I think maybe it's just a little bit too much and trying to weave in way too many themes into one. Uh, so in the way of apologizing, I'll just kind of go back through somewhat quickly uh, what we've done and what we've talked about. And I feel like what we've talked about has been kind of technical and a little bit challenging uh, and more teachy. And so I'll also kind of apologize about that. Some of that just has to do with my style. And so, um, but I hope that it's at least been helpful, if nothing else, to jog your memory on something that you've thought about or learned before, or at least encourage and challenge you on thinking about this topic of apologetics, which remember at the very beginning, uh, we talked about as not so much defending your faith as much as making sense of your faith to people who don't speak the same Christian language as you. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's, that's been our goal in doing this. And so I, I certainly think that with our Holy Spirit series in the fall, we're going to revisit this idea a lot because that's one of the main things the Spirit does in our lives uh, and especially in relation to, to coming across people who don't have the promised Holy Spirit in their lives. The Holy Spirit is continually drawing people to Jesus. And so evangelism is just part and parcel to what the Holy Spirit is doing uh, in uh, other people's lives around us. Uh, and if we're uh, paying attention to what he's doing, we're going to be involved in that. So the, the theme will come back up again, definitely. Uh, but let me recap uh, real quickly what we've done so I used a kind of a five-typology approach to this topic, which is a little bit technical. It's kind of ancient in some ways. But anybody who's talking about this issue of how Christians should interact with their culture goes back to this typology, so to speak, or this framework, and addresses it. Okay? Um, and so it's important that we at least know or kind of hear about these. And so the five things that we talked about was one, Christ against culture, all right? Uh, you know, and we use the, the uh, theme from the scripture of you've turned my house into a den of thieves, okay? And so I tried to use the same format for each one of these sermons to make them a little bit easier, but I'm not so sure that's happened, uh, so that's fine. Uh, and we just talked about the idea that uh, there are times in our faith when we absolutely have to rise up and fight against some of the things that we see in society uh, that are just not okay, uh, particularly because they're close to God's heart. Now, people have throughout the past mistaken issues that were close to God's heart that were in reality close to their heart and have used that, and that's become really problematic. But that, that's one of the approaches. Christ against culture, we talked about you turn my father's house into a den of thieves. I gave you the question, and each one of these weeks I gave you some kind of what I thought was a simple, practical question that you could bring up in conversation with someone particularly who wasn't a Christian that would lead to a spiritual conversation. And maybe that's been helpful for you, maybe not. Certainly, depending on what they know about Christianity and about Jesus determines the kind of question you'd be able to ask. Some of these questions are far too elementary. Uh, whereas some of them would be a little bit too advanced if we were to ask them. And so I tried to kind of start at a real basic level. Uh, and so that question that day was assuming a good God existed, how do you think he would work in the world? And the point of that question was to get people to think through because they have a natural bent towards you know, wishing that there was an order, a certain order to the world around them. 
And sometimes when we look at God's activity, we think this seems disordered, chaotic, and random, particularly if you've paid any attention to evolution or anything like that. And so it's important sometimes to talk through, well, okay, let's talk about this for a moment. Is there order to the world that God made? And to get people to think through what would it look like for you if, uh, you know, uh, a good God sort of um, had, was working in and around the world, okay? And so that's a good place to start, uh, I think. And um, yeah, anyway, some of that kind of addresses the whole Christ against culture because it's often this disordered and chaotic world that, uh, that Christians feel that they need to uh, be away from, isolate themselves from, whatever else. All right, and that's Matthew 21, 13. The second one was Christ of culture. This is the polar opposite. If on one hand, Christians have completely taken themselves out of culture and tried their best to have nothing to do with it. On the other, Christians have just pretty much adopted cultural beliefs and patterns and look no different, really, than the people around them, okay? And, you know, each one of these we went through kind of strengths. We went through people's tendencies within them. We even talked to some about historical movements and things like that. I don't expect to completely recap this. But in terms of pairing this up with a scripture from, particularly from what Jesus says, I think back when he talks about, you know, uh, that Satan has come to steal and destroy, but I've come to bring life and life to the full. Because ultimately that's what culture is, right? It's about human flourishing. People doing the best they can to get the most out of the world around them, in accordance with the values that that culture has adopted or aligned themselves with or whatever else. And so I think in Jesus, in, in the teens over teen camp, had this as one of their themes for the Wiley Church, that Jesus has come to bring life and life to the full. All right? And so I gave you the, the question here, what times in life do you feel most at peace or feel really happy? Uh, just an, an easy question to talk through with someone, to ask them, that kind of hits on the idea that people have an emotional connection to the world around them. All right? Uh, and the, the whole order, emotionality, and some of the other points that I'm going to bring down are just, I think, um, ways to interact with people that are sort of basic to their human nature. That people want order, that they're emotional when it comes to looking at uh, life, and so you can kind of connect with them at an emotional level. So at what times do you feel at most peace or feel really happy? Early on when we started the church, I don't know if you remember, I don't remember what series we were in, but one of the most memorable experiences that I have had was we were in the uh, business building, yeah? And we were somehow talking about peace, and we just went around and talked about, you know, what really brings you peace. I just remember that. I don't know why, but I felt really connected to the way God brings about peace on earth through the things that we share. Because they were very, um, I don't know, it was an emotional moment, to me at least. I know some of you probably have different stories and things like that. But that's a great way to kind of talk through uh, emotions with folks. All right, and that's John 10.10. 10. The next one I talked about, if you're looking, I've kind of done this a couple times, spectrum. I like spectrum. Spectrums are nice. Um, on the one, against culture, right? Spectrum, yeah, here. On the other, of culture, yeah, right? So one of the ones that most, I think, young people particularly are, have an affinity to is Christ transforming culture, which is the closest typology to that against culture, which kind of sounds weird, but the whole notion of transforming culture is that Christians ought to be at the highest levels of culture, politics, music, art, and inserting intentionally the message of God into the things that they do. All right? 
We talked about that, and again, I'm not advocating any of these. In fact, D.A. Carson, who's you know a lesser-known scholar and theologian, came along probably 50 years after Niebuhr wrote this Christ and Culture typology book, and basically said, listen, we need all of these in our arsenal to deal with culture. There are some times when these things make sense, sometimes when they absolutely don't make sense, and our ability to really effectively interact with our culture has to do with our navigating the times when we ought to be using these typologies. Rather than just growing up in a tradition or history that embraced one, neglected the other, and therefore pretty much only lives out of one of these, which is not okay, according to him. Uh, and so, uh, again, I don't have time to go through the pros and cons of each one of these. What we're simply doing is just recapping for you, but recognize that, uh, that each of these has its own issues and problems. The scripture that I gave for this one was Matthew 2, 17. And, you know, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. That Jesus came to very much transform people's lives around him. And there's an argument on whether or not he really came to, to transform culture as much as he transformed uh, the people who culture had uh, pretty much done away with. And so I asked the question, I'm actually going to change this question a little bit, but you probably don't even remember the question anyway, because slowly we drifted away from people participating in our service, which, whose fault is that? I don't know. Probably yours. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Um, but I will say, and this is a total tangent and a side note, as we... Um, study the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit, as I'm going to start calling him, rather than the Holy Spirit, uh, one of the things that I really want to incorporate into our worship time together is a lot more participation, and particularly spontaneous participation. So one of the things that Pentecostals have, I think, rightly taught us as a culture is that the Spirit does speak when we come together. Not does he doesn't he not only speaks when we come together. He certainly speaks in our individual lives, but and I think this may come across a little offensive to those of us who tend to be pretty independent and individualistic. The Spirit's most powerful voice is when we are gathered together as a community, where the Spirit can gift us and can counter some of the things that we say. I mean, certainly we need discernment, and I think that's the, the thing that for people who didn't grow up in a very spontaneous or Pentecostal-type environment, they're scared that someone's going to get up and talk and say something wrong. Yeah, they will, and then we discern it, and we're like, probably that's not true. <laughs> Which, again, in our culture seems odd, because, right, you know, the idea of, like, countering someone in front of someone else seems kind of weird. Um, but if you really go back and look at at least the worship of the, the church at Corinth, which we can assume is the same type of worship at most of the other churches, it was far more um, participative and spontaneous than most of our services are. And so one of the things that we want to really implement over the next semester is much more spontaneous and, uh, and I'm not going to say spirit-led because I think anytime gathers, uh, believers get together, what? Believers get together, get together. They both work. Um, the Spirit leads and guides us. But I think we need to open up uh, more doors in our services for people to actually express that guidance to each other and participate and to, to, to come prepared. And so um, that'll be weird when we first start. But uh, hopefully that will become a, a kind of part and parcel to what we do here in our services. So I say that. Uh, that's, that's good stuff. Um, so the question that I kind of changed here is, assuming there is a God, how would you determine if he was good? 
Uh, and again, I think this question works. Uh, the question that I asked actually originally was, what, what is your problem with the God of the Old Testament? What, what character traits do you not feel comfortable with? But in all honesty, that would assume that they actually know something about the Old Testament, and it's you know, more than, than what they've heard. But if it's a, someone who's a Christian or someone who's kind of like quasi-Christian, whatever that means, you can maybe ask that question. Just like you could ask the question of what about Jesus do you find particularly um, you know, inspiring or motivating or whatever else. But I think the question, uh, particularly to someone who really isn't aware of a lot of Christian faith, asking, assuming there is a God, how would you determine if God was good, gets at this issue of morality. And I think a lot of, of people um, you know, just naturally are trying to figure out how to be moral people, more or less. Uh, I was telling Chelsea about this article I read in National Geographic. I, I was like subscribed to like six magazines. Somehow I was like in a reward for something, but I don't remember what the reward was. And initially I thought it wasn't really a reward until I started reading some of these magazines. They're pretty good. And one of them is called Why We Lie. And it talks about how you can't... Well, there's a number of things that I took away from it. The first one is that lying is pretty much a developmental thing. It's, it's if you get better at lying, you know you're growing up. Because l people who are more mature are better at lying than people who are less mature. Um, <laughs> sounds like I shouldn't be preaching on that. Uh, so I'm just actually communicating what was in the article to you, okay? Uh, and they talk about how um, as we get older, we also learn how to cover up our lies a lot better. And I was telling Chelsea a story that I think is really funny about this eight-year-old who they do this experiment where the, uh, the guy who's experimenting, a girl experimenting, walks out of the room. There's a, you know, eight, nine-year-old, whatever, and there's a toy under a blanket. And he says, don't look at the toy under the blanket until I get back, right? And so like 80% of kids look at the toy, okay? Like, and that's all ages. But the question is, how many of them are going to lie? And then how many of them are going to try to cover up their lie? Well, in one of my favorite little anecdotes they had. It was an eight-year-old. Guy comes back in. He says, you know, go ahead and reach under the blanket. Don't look, but touch it. You know, wh what do you think it is? And she goes, oh, it's Barney. <laughs> and he's like, how do you know it's Barney? And she goes, feels purple. <laughs> so at some point, we get better at covering up our lies because she wasn't so good at it. Um, and, but there is sort of an innate, uh, you know, maybe ability uh, that, uh, you know, that happens there. So I think that morality is always something people are interested in. What's really interesting is there's another study about people who fill out this questionnaire and they get paid based on how many questions they get right. But at the end of the questionnaire, they put it through a shredder. Okay, but it doesn't actually shred it. They just think it's shredded. And then the questionnaire asks them, how many of them did you get right? And it, almost everybody lies about it. But they only lie slightly, which is really weird. That you could lie a lot more, but a lot of people only lie slightly. And I think the proof was that we're like not moral, but we're not like too not moral. <laughs> we like have our own pretty, you know, set range and limit. Anyway, I say all that to say, morality is always an interesting topic to talk about with people. Um, and I think particularly when you can take it back to, okay, well, what would a good God look like? And I think the point of any of these questions is ultimately to lead people to Jesus. Some quality, uh, character trait, whatever, in the Gospels. That doesn't necessarily take, you know, five minutes. It usually takes a relationship with people, ultimately. Um, but certainly that's why we talk a lot and focus a lot on God's character, God's, uh, you know, who he is. That's Matthew 2.17. I don't know if I told you that one. That Christ transforming culture, not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. The one we talked about last week, in some ways was one of the most difficult and is the most difficult to truly understand. 
partly because it's, it's more of a Catholic perspective or Catholic perspective, and maybe some of us haven't been used to that, or if we did, we've kind of been separated from it. And that idea was the Christ above culture, which again on that spectrum is sort of like the closest to Christ of culture. So you've got against, of, above, transforming, and then the one we'll talk about briefly today. And Christ above culture basically says that human values and cultural values are okay, and they, they take baby steps in the direction maybe towards God sometimes, but they ultimately need the gospel to be communicated at a full level. And I didn't give you the, the quote last week, and I'm sorry, but the quote was John 4, 23, 14, 23? No, 4, where Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, and he basically says, you know, hey, you guys have this mystery of God on a mountain. The Jews have a better perspective of God, but a time is coming when, you know, you will worship in spirit and in truth. The idea that both of them kind of had a direction they were heading that was more or less okay but there was something that they were ultimately being led to. And I tried to communicate last time, although I think I didn't do such a great job, to be honest, how certain values that we have uh, uh, in culture are decent values. They start off really good, but they can't possibly come to fruition or fulfillment apart from the gospel. And sometimes it's a great way to start with people to kind of overlap values uh, and an understanding of what people's values actually are. So the question, and I didn't give it to you last week, and I'm sorry, okay, uh, is simply what do you find particularly awe-inspiring? I ask this with my students when we talk about reverence or the idea of religion. Just what do you find awe-inspiring? What kind of like, it, it makes you just think like, dang, that's so big and powerful and amazing. And I think that can be a really great question because it, it gets at this idea of beauty. What is beauty? How do we decide what's beautiful, what's good, what's valuable? which is another, I think, common overlapping point with people is just what's beautiful? How do we determine beauty uh, as a culture or whatever? Now, you could follow up with this question, but I think it's a weird question to follow up with immediately after it would take some prep and that the conversation's actually kind of gone somewhere. And, uh, you know, this one's very similar to the questions I've already asked. I'm not a great professional or something with this. These are just some of the questions that I tend to ask in different variety of ways. Uh, but assuming this was created, what would it say about the creator? Uh, again, trying to take things that are beautiful or valuable and take them back to what quality uh, of God would this reflect can be a very important... Uh, again, it's, it's, this is assuming hypothetical stuff. If you weren't here for the beginning part of our series, we talked a lot about how a lot of millennials now use inductive reasoning versus deductive reasoning, and that is, in an inductive reasoning, you can get people to think, what if, what if, what if? Whereas in deductive reasoning... It's what is, what is, what is, and so it makes it kind of uh, uh, challenging. But this is, this is why we're doing a lot of assuming that, because you're not, not getting anyone to say, okay, I believe that. You're just saying, okay, assuming. Uh, let's use our imagination here. So assuming this was created, what would it say about the creator? All right, and the last one that we'll do today, and I'm just going to go over this really pretty quickly, uh, is the most confusing one, I think, when you really begin to look at it. A lot of people say they like this one, but what they like is the title of it, not the explanation of it. Because in the book, he doesn't explain this one very well. And it's the one that's supposed to be kind of in the middle mediating perspective, and it's called Christ and Culture and Paradox. It's sort of like, you know, when someone asks you, is it, what do you think, is it this way or that way? You're like, oh, I'm in the middle with it. And someone's like, what does that even mean? Like, how would you even know? Like, how, do, how could you possibly be in the middle on that issue? Some of us, yes, maybe so. This is what he kind of comes to at the end of the book, is this, you know, well, this is sort of like in the middle. And the idea is simply that you've got Christ and his perspective on things, You've got the culture and its perspective on things, 
and there's constantly a tension and paradox between the two. And for whatever reason, God, in his wisdom, uh, for the time being, has allowed us to live in these sort of two different realities. Now, that's one of the issues we're going to talk about when we talk about the Holy Spirit uh, in the fall, but it's Christ and culture and paradox. Is that what your question was? Yes. Great. No, no, the book is uh, Christ and Culture by uh, Richard Niebuhr. That's where they get the five typology things. Yeah. Don't read it. Not a good idea. Uh, <laughs> read the Christianity Today article I posted on Facebook. Uh, I'm serious. I, I mean, unless you're like really theologically minded, a grad student, and that you're just not, you're not going to want to read it. It's, it's, it's bad. Uh, and his writing style is very philosophical, which is just bad. A lot of philosophers are actually terrible writers. Uh, they're wonderful thinkers, but terrible writers um, in terms of communicating their ideas. Some of you should know that. I mean, I, I preach in front of you and tend to be philosophically minded, and I'm, I'm terrible at expressing my ideas. Um, okay, so Christ and culture and paradox. The passage for this is Luke 20, 25. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Now, obviously, I'm using really short uh, ideas here to try to kind of encourage you to think through how Jesus himself reflected these typologies in his own, um, you know, thinking. But here, clearly, and some people have gone so far as to say this passage means that Christians shouldn't be involved in politics, which I don't agree with. Uh, but clearly, Jesus is saying Caesar's got his motivations and goals. Give him what he deserves or taken or whatever and give to God what God's. Obviously, he's not saying that what belongs to Caesar doesn't also belong to God. But in the way that he's saying it, he's identifying that in this reality, there are uh, different responsibilities and there's a tension. Often you see Christians, um, before rejecting, rebelling against a government, told to submit to it. This idea to us is pretty foreign because we live in a, in a government where we're just really kind of like don't care. We're very open and uh, you know, quick to talk bad about it and maybe break the laws. No one's going to, uh, you know, find us out for it. But uh, in that day and age, uh, things were obviously very, very different. So I'm just going to give you the question for this one, and then I'm going to move into the f just the few points that I have. Uh, this one, in, in my mind, is just who in your life has impacted you most for the good? <coughs> so who in your life has impacted you most for the good? There's probably a better way of phrasing that. Uh, a follow-up question to that could easily be what qualities of their life are you trying to imitate or do you want to most imitate or whatever else? Um, right? It is emotional, isn't it? Are you okay? Can you be okay? Yeah, that one's just who in your life has impacted you most for the good. That's an easy question in my mind. I've asked that plenty of times and people have talked about it. The second one, though, is, is like, like Lorraine said, I think that's what she was referring to, is that one's pretty emotional. Uh, I don't remember. Oh, the first one's emotional? I didn't say it, but some people I communicated ESP with. <laughs> so, sorry. Sometimes I totally forget that some of you can read that and some of you can't. Uh, so, I apologize. Let me actually verbally say it. There. I didn't do it again, did I? Oh, my gosh. Second time? Sorry. What second question? Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> what qualities of their life do you most hope to imitate or are you trying to imitate or, you know, something like that? 
Because I think most people, you know, again, the goal here is to connect them to some kind of relational aspect. We all have a need and a desire to be, to be connected with people, particularly connected to people who we think are particularly morally good or whatever, or are living life for some larger uh, mission. And so talking to people sometimes about people who have most impacted and encouraged them, and then how they're trying or attempting, you know, to, to uh, kind of imitate that gets at this idea of emotionality. So the, the five things, by the way, that I didn't really do such a great job of communicating from each time were order, emotionality, morality, beauty, and relationality. And these just come directly from a guy named Alistair McGrath, who probably is the most influential in my mind apologist of our day. It's a British, uh, I think Presbyterian, maybe Episcopal, I can't remember, um, teacher and preacher, and he's got some really, really great stuff. For those of you who are interns, you had to read his theology book, which I know you hated, but I think they moved away from that. You must have complained enough about it uh, that they axed that book. But Yeah, order, emotionality, morality, beauty, and relationality. Uh, five in easy entry points with people uh, who may not share your same worldview. When you talk, when you have a, that's what each one of these questions are geared towards, is I really should have like a PowerPoint. Yeah, yeah I know. Seriously, right, Josh? I know, my PowerPoints are just so beautiful that they totally distract from my points. You know what I mean? No, you don't know what I mean. The PowerPoints I've done? Five points, yeah. Order, emotionality, morality. <laughs> what a really bad joke in my mind. Uh, so many badalities, you know. Um, relationality and beauty. Beautyality. Okay? Guys, this isn't groundbreaking. I mean, you don't you know, like write down and like go home and study it and like memorize the list. I mean, this, think about it. Just, this is being a human, right? People want to talk about what they find beautiful. They want to talk about the people who care, they love and who care about them. They want to talk about what it means to be right and wrong and living a successful and good life. You know what I mean? I mean, this is not totally you know, amazingly weird. This is just a concise way of phrasing entry points with people. Too many of us tend to think... What? Oh. Uh, okay, great. So, yes, here we go. Um, so living in, t in the tension between these two, I think for those of you who've graduated college, you understand this sometimes maybe better than those who haven't, or those of you who are new Christians, you understand this a little bit better than if you're not. And that's living in between the two tensions of what culture or the world or your friend group or your upbringing sort of wants from you and, and trying to really imitate Christ in the ways that you see him working in your life. And this can be very challenging. Um, it, it just, we just feel the two pressures or tensions on our life. Uh, one of the things that we've most tried to do here as a church, that when we look back and if tomorrow our church is done, besides trying to come alongside you focus people and support you, uh, is we've tried to give people a vision for when they get out of college, how to see their life as a continuing work of God's ministry, not as a stopping or as a paring down, or as a, a, a resting time. Uh, it, it requires transition, and that's really what we're trying to do. And, and one of those lessons is to understand that your workplace is just as important, if not more important, a ministry field as your school. And by ministry field, we do not mean just a place to evangelize people. 
We need a place for God and his spirit to change you, to uh, you know, live out all of those one another passages, to uh, help you understand who you really are in the scheme of things, and to really you know, uh, inherit and adopt his values. And, and be in a, in, a, in a situation where you're not around people who are easily and always encouraging you to do that. Uh, being a missionary, so to speak, or an ambassador in your place. And so, um, you know, it's just important. So living in these two tensions can be very, very difficult, um, particularly because, uh, you know, we have almost diametrically opposite goals and successes and ideas of what we, what we should be doing. And on our worst days, we're living completely in accordance with what our culture tells us to do and hoping that somewhere in there God finds glory. And on our best days, we're trying our best to, to do a few things that we think uh, you know, God is really wanting us to do. But the Spirit works in that in powerful, powerful ways. And, um, so, uh, and, and by this, I don't mean, by the way, necessarily sinful living versus not sinful living. I, I think that I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but I'm going to introduce a really radical idea to you hopefully during the spirit series and that is that many of us who've lived with this idea that we are battling against the flesh uh, and see the flesh as our sinful nature that's really not a, a, a Pauline idea at all Paul doesn't talk about us battling against the sinful nature as if every morning we wake up sin is ready to take over and the spirit's just trying its best to battle that that's not how Paul talks about it I know many of us think that sometimes but just like God has completely defeated Satan, the Spirit has no problem fighting your flesh. None at all. Any resistance is on our part, and uh, it's from a lack of understanding of what God's doing or his purposes or whatever else. And this idea that there's this deep inner battle between you know, good and evil within us as Christians is really not a Christian idea. It's much more of a Greek idea or uh, an animist idea of light and dark. And, and I'm sorry that I'm just mentioning that right now and not actually talking more about it. <laughs> but we will talk about it. Uh, week seven or week six, or you're just going to have to wait for it. Whatever happens, happens. All right, but we do have these two tensions. And these two tensions aren't, aren't you know, it, let me just put it another way, in a way that many of you have heard before, and that's that it's often not the choice between good and bad that we struggle with. It's, it's good and better. It's a cultural idea of where we should be going, which people around us are going to say, oh, you did a good job, you look successful, and a spiritual or spirit-led path which people aren't going to be near as excited about necessarily, at least not in the short run. And that's maybe a better way of, of trying to phrase that. Uh, Leslie, do you mind closing up the kitchen? Because they're coming here pretty quick. By the way, no one going in the kitchen uh, because there's a group, I think a church meeting here, and they're using the kitchen and so that's why we got the styrofoam cups. I know, you know you're in Denton when like you have six people come up to you and you're like, why are we using styrofoam? <laughs> why are we killing the earth? Uh, you know. <laughs> Do you hate whales? Uh, like almost all of them have the exact same voice. I don't even know. It's so weird. Uh, but please, don't go in the kitchen uh, because we've got a group that's going to cook. Hopefully the smell is going to you know, come in here and, and enlighten our worship. All right, so um, we live in the tension between these two. So let me give you just three quick, quick suggestions, I think, that fit here with this tension. Uh, well, actually, maybe one clarifying statement. Guys, when we're in the tension, all right, and that tension is mostly about living as a people who are kind of living in the future in a way, and that the Spirit is beginning to work in our lives in ways that 
will be the dominant way of living, really the only way of living in the future, while still living in a culture that is ultimately dying, okay? Now we're picking up on some of Paul's language and words. There's obviously going to be tension. And one of the biggest tensions is who's in charge. And we've got to be very careful not to live life out as lords, but as servants. Because Jesus talks about the people who are really in charge are servants of everybody else. And so a lot of people, I think, sometimes when they get into Christianity, begin to start thinking of themselves as literally better than people or as in charge, or in authority over. Oh, well, my way of life is the way life is going to stick around, blah, 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 this way and that way. And we've got to think of ourselves really as servants and not uh, as, as lords. And I think one of the, the really um, harmful, and I talked about this at the beginning of the series, things that has come out of Christian rational defense of the faith is this taking the truth, in the way that American Christians define it, and beating people over the head with it. We've got the truth. It's exclusive, and, and you don't understand it and are a part of it. And yet, when you really look at the way the Greeks, the Hebrews, uh, and the Jewish people thought about truth, it had everything to do with relationships, not with abstract knowledge. And in some ways, what we've simply done with the Christian truth is we've done what Americans have been doing for a long time, saying we're smarter than the rest of you. Or scientists have been doing for a long time. Look at how primitive you are. Look how smart and sophisticated we are. And guys, there, there's not a, uh, um, a thing more against what Jesus came to do. Um, and so that's, that's super important. Uh, and, and, you know, and that's, that's what I'm getting at with this, this last one about living in these two tensions. Uh, is that we've got to live as servants and not as lords. So the first one, and I don't know, I tried to do some imagery on this one. Maybe it's good, maybe it's not. Uh, you know, we got to knock out the door with people rather than ringing the doorbell ten times. You know what I mean? No? People are like, nope, that's not at all clear to me. <laughs> well, good, I'll explain it to you then, okay? Knock at the door versus ringing the doorbell ten times. Uh, we got to be very careful with how forceful we are with people when it comes to really talking about faith. Uh, I just, you know... How, in whatever way it is, it's, it's learning how to be gentle like Jesus was gentle and knocking at people's door. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue this, this language on, and I'm going to say that the next thing that's important for us to do is to get invited in versus being that nosy neighbor or putting our foot in the door, <laughs> uh, which is a, a thing that we use a lot, we say a lot, you know. But someone who puts their foot in the door is usually not someone who's being invited in, right? It's like that all that's left is like that chain and we're just kind of keeping our foot there. Uh, not so good. And, and then I think one of the hardest things for many of us is be at home, not ready to leave when we are invited in. And this is really challenging with many of our friends who are not Christian or have different beliefs or values than us is actually being at home, uh, living in the tension of two worlds rather than being ready to leave every time we get around a group that's a little bit different than us or embraces a different worldview than us. All right? Because remember, Jesus was called the friend of sinners the friend of the drunks and the tax collectors. You can't imagine he enjoys spending time in that area in regard to the things that he watched people do to themselves. But you better believe that he saw himself on mission there and was comfortable and at home around them. Otherwise, they would ne never would have listened to him or seen him as an authoritative figure. And, uh, and I think it's important. So, knock at the door versus ringing the doorbell 10 times. Uh, one of the really practical ways we do this is by asking lots of questions. Now, questions with purpose. This is an interrogation time, you know? 
Learning how to ask people questions and engage in conversation uh, is super important. And questions are the thing that allows us to knock at the door. And many of us, uh, we either just don't ask any questions of the spiritual nature to anybody. Just don't. We just haven't built that into our lives. And if that is you, figure out how to build it into your life. Ask some of these just really basic questions that get people to start thinking about spiritual things. You'll be amazed at where it heads. Okay? Sometimes knocking at the door is as simple as saying, I'm a part of a ministry, and then just leaving it at that. Dropping a little hint in there, and if they want to pick up on it, great. And if they don't, fine. But you dropped it. All right? Um, we got to knock at people's door. Rather than ringing down the doorbell ten times, trying to kind of force people into conversations or forcing our way or forcing our view. Or, I don't think this fits, but I'm just going to go with it. I don't know if you guys did this a lot when you were young, but I did the uh, door knock, ditching, doorbell. Ding dong ditch. The older I get, the less cool I become, okay? You'd ring someone's doorbell and just like run away. Some of us in our relationships with people ring their doorbell and then just like run away. We like try to start a conversation about something spiritual or maybe something just comes up spiritual and then we just totally shut down and don't continue on, okay? That's not okay either. If the Spirit brings up an opportunity for you to, to talk with someone about something spiritual, uh, you, you take that opportunity. You throw everything else down to the wayside. And, and, and sometimes that's us taking opportunities by asking people again to pray for them. That's knocking on the door. Uh, but it's, it's, it's equally not okay to, to knock on the door or ring the doorbell and then just run off, which some of us do in our fear that we're not going to say the right thing, not know the right you know, answer, and, you know, we've already talked about how it has very little to do with you knowing the right answer and way more to do with how you treat somebody in a conversation. That's what we talked about last week in that, uh, that passage from Peter. Um, I used three passages last week that are very common in our evangelistic efforts that I think are misconstrued and misunderstood. So if you want to go back and kind of think through those or look at them, that's great. So we've got to come up with questions, and we've got to be very okay not having a, a specific agenda. It's okay to have questions that have purpose behind them. And maybe that even leads somewhere. But having your own agenda is tricky because you often have your own motivation and your goals in the conversation. And I can't tell you how many well-meaning Christians, myself included, have often used evangelistic opportunities more as something to share later on than they actually paid attention to what they were saying during. The whole goal was so I can share that I had a conversation this week or that I met this person or, man, look how bad their life is. And the reward has already been gotten. You got the reward. Someone was impressed with you for five seconds because you did outreach. Good for you. But you missed a total reward from God that was getting to kind of meet someone with where they're at and trying to have that that, uh, conversation with them. And that's super important. We've got to get past some of our agenda items uh, when we're talking with people about, uh, about faith. And a lot of times, they might have their own agenda. And when, sometimes following that agenda is just fine uh, because the Spirit's going to be able to work in that. And so that's a practical piece of advice uh, I'll, I'll give you. The second one, get invited in versus being a nosy neighbor. I can't possibly emphasize enough, although I think we've talked about this plenty, that the way you treat people speaks far greater than what you say or how you approach the conversation. But let me give a caveat with that, because I think too many Christians use that as an excuse to, to not say anything. Uh, how you say things communicates how you treat people. <laughs> They're not, like, disconnected. <laughs> uh, 
So one of the things I think is particularly important for, for people in your workplace and coworkers is for you to be very careful how you talk about other people. Uh, because how you talk about people communicates how you treat people. And, uh, and that's important. And how you address issues as challenging as dealing with a coworker who is not helping you out or taking credit for work you've done or telling on you behind your back or whatever else illustrates to that person how you're willing to treat people and very much gives uh, God the glory in those situations and are just as important as an outreach or evangelistic effort as having some blunt or overt conversation with them about faith. Because if somebody knows that you're a Christian, their eyes are very clearly on you. And sometimes it's Christians themselves that are the ones looking more intently than others. And remember, we talked about the idea that evangelism is not to non-Christians. It's just as important to people who call themselves Christians who either never really committed their life to God or have committed their life to God but never really figured out this whole Holy Spirit thing. And so in many ways, they're sort of asleep in the Spirit and have stayed pretty much where they are uh, since they've been converted or since they've started following God, which I definitely think is possible. Another great thing that Pentecostals have taught us, being awake in the Spirit. Um, So, Get invited in versus being a, a, a nosy neighbor. I always think about that movie, um, although I feel like I've only seen like 20 minutes of it, the same 20 minutes on, of it on TV over and over. But that Tim Allen movie where he won't put up that snowman? Or, yeah, yeah. Dan Aykroyd, nosy neighbor? Yeah. In this case, he was a good nosy neighbor, kind of. Okay, well, whatever. Last one. Be at home with people. Versus ready to leave. And I think this is where a lot of us uh, struggle most. But let me give you a really challenging way of thinking about this. Too many of us don't take what Paul says in 2 Corinthians uh, in 2 verse 5 seriously when he says that we are the aroma of Christ to God and to people being saved. And then the aroma of death to people who aren't. We tend to see that passage as people who aren't saved are aroma of death to us. And that's not at all the way to look at that. If you can't handle being around people who live in very different lifestyles than you and are involved in some pretty deep sin, you don't quite believe in or understand the power of of the Holy Spirit uh, to cleanse them and to draw them to God. And we've got to be very okay. And again, this isn't some like we've got to go seek out an area to go do this. Some of us do. Some of us live pretty... Uh, introverted, you know, existences. We have work or we have school that maybe isn't around just a ton of people. I don't know if you're doing online classes or if you work like I work pretty much for myself, besides maybe, you know, teaching. You have to kind of go out and find places. But many of us are already around people. And one of the most consistent things I hear, particularly from transitioning people out of college, is my coworkers are just so, you know? That's, That's maybe true, but you were there too at one point and still are in the secret areas of your life. And you've got to be very careful with how you treat other people. Be at home with people. Um, Versus just ready to get up and and leave. Now certainly there's times. I uh, uh, probably shouldn't chew this. No, I'd be fine. It's Denton. If I get in trouble, I get in trouble. But I, uh, I go to Whiskey Wednesdays uh, at Eastside on Wednesday night, and I sit in one spot almost every week, and it's a social spot where people come and hang out and talk. And now it's true that I may have a glass of whiskey over two hours, literally one shot, while people are, like, getting toasted. 
and that's not that's not a term. Getting getting licked. Think of all the other cool words I know and hope that some of them apply. Uh, what? Hammered. Yeah, I thought that was old. That was an old term. Toasted. Whatever, okay? The point is that, the point is, is, is that, certainly if I'm in an area where everyone around me has just gotten, you know, out of control, I'm up and ready to go, or I'm not going to buy a drink for someone, obviously. But I've met a lot of people in Denton by just sitting there. And I'm not saying I, bars are a great place to go to convert people. All of you people who struggle with alcoholism or drinkers who get drinked, what? Who get... <laughs> Who drink to get buzzed, and all of you other people who, you know, don't really appreciate alcohol, you just use it like any other horrible thing, uh, you know, to get what you want and to avoid, um, you know, real life. Um, that's not what I'm recommending, but I spend time there, and that's my consistent spot for, uh, for getting and, and meeting people, and, um, you know, and it's great. And uh, so, but each of us has uh, our spot, and we know when it's time to get up and go home, but most of the time... Uh, we have a knee-jerk reaction uh, to wanting to walk away from people who we might not, you know, share values with. And that's just not okay. It really isn't because that's not how Jesus lived. It's how his disciples wanted to live, for sure. But he didn't allow them to do that, all right? And we've got to be very, very careful, uh, uh, on the one hand, not to be thrown into that world and just basically look like no one else because you, in fact, have probably done more damage to the glory of God uh, than if you just wouldn't have been there in the first place. Uh, but at the same time, not to be around people and constantly have our nose up uh, at their way of life. Um, and so, very important for us. So, I, I just put this, and this is my last thing. Yes, Chelsea. Yeah, so I think the, the easiest answer to that is, I don't know. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it's one of the points that we made last week, and that's that we've got to understand our culture and, and choose to judge our church. And I think that uh, that's really what Paul's getting at in 1 Corinthians 6 when this, this situation happens in the church where this dude is dating his mother-in-law. Is They're all talking about, well, look how graceful we are. We're full of grace for people around us. And he's like, what well, you guys know, this is the opposite of the truth. You should judge those inside the body and not judge those on the outside. God, let God judge those situations because you're, you don't know them as well as you know the people in the church. I think there's a real tricky thing. I, I think uh, when it comes to Christians who are, you know, uh, the best way to, to phrase that in my mind is through thinking about who's closest to you. If it's your family or your neighbor who you have a good relationship, certainly someone in this body, sure. But if it's a coworker who claims to be Christian, and, you know, you don't really know, okay, uh, then I think it's, you, you, in my perspective, I treat those folks uh, a lot like I would treat someone who I didn't know was in the church. Because it's just, it's too easy to assume people are Christian in, in American culture, right? Uh, and even for Christians who, who have given their life to God, like I said, which I'll try to explain in our full, uh, Holy Spirit sermon, many of them are asleep in the Spirit, meaning that they've really never picked up on the fact that the Spirit's uh, alive within them working, and so they made a commitment, but that commitment was almost an insurance policy for in the future, and they're not actually living in the spirit. 
Um, and so, I don't know, I just feel like that, you know, you've got you to be careful. You've got to use judgment there. Jesus certainly had no problem uh, throwing out barbs to the religious people of his day. But they were also religious leaders. Uh, you think about how he treated um, Nicodemus, who comes up to him, you know, good teacher. He, he, he didn't, you know, immediately shut him down. But it was, it was a slow kind of, let's redirect. Um, yeah, I don't know. Does that make sense, kind of? No? You wanted a real clear answer? You wanted to click like a six step? Yeah. Okay, I don't have it. Uh, so I have a really funny illustration of this one, and then I'll be done, and we'll, we'll do our, uh, our worship here. But uh, I said you, get, you need to be fully present with people uh, versus pinching your nose at them. Um, what I mean by pinching your nose at them is when, <laughs> when I was at Northeast Garland one year, uh, John Von Runnen, who many of you know is the minister over at the Wiley Church, his son, Cole, has a really strong sense of smell like I do. And we went into a nursing home. And um, it wasn't soon after, and you know, he was probably six or seven at the time, that I saw him walking up to people like this and shaking their hand. <laughs> Hi, I'm Cole. And I'm thinking, poor kid, he's got such a strong sense of smell. Any of us who've been in a nursing home, it's, it's tough. And he's trying his best to still be friendly while wondering, is he in a trash can? Like, what is happening here? <laughs> Okay? Now, for adults, we don't do that, right? But some of us are babes in Christianity when we have to get around people and, you know, pinch our nose at their sin or filth or whatever else. Um, we're exactly like Cole uh, in my mind. Tabby is questioning my il- illustration, but you know what? We can fight it out later. Yeah, well, whatever. You looked quizzical, and that makes me angry. Um, <laughs> Just kidding. We've got to be fully present with people. And that means all of our faculties and all of our abilities to communicate and our friendliness. And it's really obvious. I'm one of those people who is terrible at socializing um, and uh, when I'm ready to go. You're like, I'm just like ready to go. Um, my dad, who's not here this morning, they're in Vancouver. I'm so glad because this is a great illustration. If you've ever been talking to my mom, which you probably would remember because I'm kind of memorable, um, and my dad is ready to go, he will literally come up to her and, and he's like, let's go. And my mom is not a pushover. Any of you know my mom, she's pretty intimidating. But when my dad is ready to go, he is full on ready to go, okay? And, you know, he's a little extreme, no doubt. But many of us guys communicate to other people when we're ready to leave that that person doesn't have much integrity. And so some of the, uh, uh, I won't use that word again. I should use a different word. What is it? Dignity. Boom. Because integrity means something different now. Or... I mean, think of it as something different now. Who knows? Uh, so we've got to be careful about uh, being uh, fully present with people. And that's why one of the things I think will change your, uh, a lot of your interactions at work, if we can be fully present with people, recognizing that every interaction with, with someone is an opportunity for the Spirit to work in us. Because it, it turns mundane uh, experiences of annoyance, which many of us have. Let's not pretend we get annoyed at some of the... Seinfeld was one of my favorite shows simply because they just talked all about these minor annoyances that not only made them break up with people, but get tired of other people. And that's why it was such a brilliant show, because it was a perfect caricature of who we are as Americans. We're so individualistic, we have our own spaces that we want to stay in, and we don't want people to enter into our space. Well, so many of our natural, cultural, introverted values run uh, uh, directly against what we've been called to in Christ when it comes to really being with people, loving people, and, um, and taking care of them. So, a few more practical suggestions before I... Uh, these are like super practical. This is maybe like not 
helpful, but I'm just going to go with it. Don't try to write these down, man. It's too hard. So if a conversation gets heated, uh, this, this is probably more common than you think. And this can apply to social media. It can apply to sitting with someone. Um, I, I read a, a statement maybe a week ago, two weeks ago. can't remember that a kind word at the perfect timing uh, can, you know, Proverbs talks about it breaking bones. Uh, and the idea that it can completely, you know, stop or stall uh, whatever hostility has kind of, you know, uh, arisen. And so a calm, kind word, maybe even a laugh, can often help in having really heated conversations. Is it, is it a good time to have heated conversations with sometimes during evangelism? Usually, no. <laughs> if you're challenging some fellow believer, yeah, sure, great. But in conversations of outreach or spending time with people, I don't know where we've gotten this idea that hell, fire, brimstone, all of the, I, I didn't know where we got it, but that we would somehow find that, that reflected in Jesus' ministry uh, or in Paul's writings is just a little bit beyond me. Um, we've got to be very careful because uh, that, that, that really doesn't work, uh, much less it's not reflective of who Jesus is. All right? Uh, when people shut down, sometimes redirecting or giving them some time uh, can be very helpful. Uh, when they just kind of shut down. Sometimes that means you pinpointed something and it's worth talking about. And other times it means you need to get, get somewhere else. <laughs> uh, change topics completely because uh, this is no good. Someone gives you a difficult question. We've got to be quick to say, I don't know. Uh, rather than giving answers that are like cliche or prepackaged or half vague answers, people are not impressed with the stuff uh, that we make up or are slick answers. They want things that make sense and are true. And a lot of us have like a whole lot of Christian clef- cliche phrases we've learned over the years. And they have virtually no meaning. Like, especially today. But they have like no meaning anymore. People aren't even picking up on the right words. I was really encouraged by our worship activity last week and trying to pray, uh, you know, prayers that we made up at that point. Um, but, you know, one of the hard things that I think many of the groups had that I heard was that trying to use spiritual words. Many of us want to use things like sanctified. What does that even mean? That sounds like a song, you know, or sanctified. You know, I don't, that's, what does that mean? You know, I don't know. Okay. Um, stagnant. If, if, if a relationship begins to get stagnant or the conversations seem to get stagnant, there's not really any movement. Sometimes having a commitment, uh, you know, asking a commitment question or a clarification question can be very helpful. Meaning, you know, so are you really committed to doing this? Is this, you know, something that you want to continue to do, give time to, uh, whatever else. Skeptical. People who have skeptical responses. Uh, it's always good in my mind to stop and address those. Uh, the idea of just sort of like moving over them, unless they're like impossible questions or they're questions that are just more of a smokescreen or an obstacle that someone puts in your way because they're not interested in talking, uh, truly skeptical questions need to, need to be addressed. Uh, meaning that if you just stop talking and then research it and then both come, you know, next week to talk or, or if it's a coworker or whatever else you've kind of looked into, uh, skepticism should be addressed, I think. Um, particularly because people, um, you know, sometimes have... Uh, personal experiences behind some of their skepticism. Uh, bad experiences, people who've had a lot bad experiences in the past, very important to, to talk to them and ask lots of clarifying questions and to really understand what those experiences were. Some people's bad experience is like three people removed from them. It's like s- their grandma's, you know, neighbor's friend's bad experience. And they're like, why, what? How do you hold that deer in near to you? I mean, maybe they do, but that's kind of strange. And some people themselves have been directly affected in incredibly negative ways some people very much in our church, shoot, some people in Denton who are involved in various ministries or churches or whatever else, sometimes simply because of um, 
willful disobedience on the part of, of Christians, and sometimes it's just we messed up somewhere along the lines. Uh, and so it's very important to, to ask lots of questions to people uh, who, uh, who've had bad experiences. Outright opposition, which I think comes back to the heated stuff, being gentle but firm with people. Uh, lip service, people who kind of you know, give you lots of really great answers but don't seem to be uh, engaged in those answers. I think asking them a lot of introspection questions. Because some people don't realize they're giving lip service. They're just on autopilot, you know. Uh, and then people who are, uh, are indifferent. Um, I think sometimes being really direct with people uh, is very helpful, particularly uh, explain to them their own indifference. Um, or asking them why they're coming across as indifferent. I could go on. I, I don't know if there were any other questions. I just wanted to open up. I, I went way too long today, but I was just trying to wrap everything up. Uh, any other thoughts or questions just on this series? It seems like something that always hits a nerve with people, I think partially because um, in some ways evangelism feels harder than it's ever felt. I don't, I don't think it is harder. I think it feels harder because we feel like we're on the defensive a lot of times. Uh, we feel like there's a lot of division, and we feel like there's insurmountable obstacles to just talking to people about faith. And that's until some of us, and I, I would say some of us, meaning a few of us, actually begin to talk to people about faith, and then we realize just how open a lot of people really are. Uh, it's slow. In college, it's faster uh, than when you get in the adult world. But when you get in the adult world, it's even slower. Uh, but it's deeper a lot of times, because a college student can make a decision and tomorrow remake the decision, <laughs> But adults generally take a little bit more time. And so in some ways, uh, for those of you who are in college, it's really helpful to kind of learn and practice and make that a part of your lifestyle. And for us who are adults, uh, it's a, just a constant uh, reminder that we're in it for the long haul here. You know, ready to follow God as he draws people in um, and, and make that just part and parcel to who we are as people of faith and people who live in the Spirit. Um, so any other questions, practical thoughts, just response, whatever? I know, I mean, it's just on your mind. You just got to wait. Time. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.